Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People, radio buying for the 99% for June 17th, 2023. Our intro music was Leonard Cohen, Democracy, and wonderful it is. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full powered Missoula Community Radio. Live streaming on 1015 KFGM, no punctuation, dot org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana. 
or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And I'm Sound Soundman Jim. And I'm we have an all-star cast today. Uh, in addition to Mark Anderlich, we have the prom queen from Winston-Salem, Linda Gillison. <laughs> and, and, Here and, I am! Yes, <laughs> yes so, I, so I can slough off. Uh, with Mark and Linda, I'm, um, since we're gonna, we might be talking about labor as it relates to trains, I'll be the third rail. <laughs> we, we can't touch you, Jim. And Jim, if you've noticed, because you haven't, uh, well, uh, uh, we are coast to coast. That's sort of a lead in oh, yes. uh, land acknowledgement. Just like the Transcontinental Railroad. That's right. That's right. I got That's you. Right. Yeah. And we are coast to coast broadcasting from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana in the near future, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And we are recording this show, 66% of us, from the comfort of our own homes, which are located in two different places. And Jim is in a public house in Snohomish, Washington, <laughs> aptly named Audacity Brewing. Ooh, gonna have to visit there someday. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs> now we owe them so much, and uh, it's Snohomish is in the land of the Lummi and Puyallup tribes primarily, but a whole bunch of Northwest coastal native mm -hmm. inhabitants here. How about you, Linda? Tell me about yeah, your and native I'm population. <laughs> yeah, I'm broadcasting from the homeland here in the uh, North Carolina Piedmont of the Lumbee people, although oh. like, probably like the Northwest uh, populations, uh, there were various tribes that all lived richly and um, and well here before the settlers came. So <laughs> before they got helped by the yeah right the, no. the colonists. It was not yeah. a good it was not a good look. But <laughs> in any case, I'm saying the Lumbee because um they have eventually moved north, but they started out here. So all right. Right. Well, our show Voice of the People seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on that news that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. <clears throat> we cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class in Montana, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. That said, we want to give old Mick, uh, the original sound man, uh, a That's shout right. out. Just like hey, the Lumbianians in North Carolina. That's the right. original and still right. That's right. Hey, Supreme. Nick, I hope you're well. I hope you're well, Nick. Well, Everybody we have a... else is just babbling on during the greeting to Mick. I don't know why you guys just blew that off. <laughs> Say hello, Mick, everyone. Yeah, Maybe, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just I just spoke with him the other day. Oh, so. oh great. <laughs> I see. Okay. Um, he, yeah, anyway, I won't go there, but <laughs> um, we <laughs> why do you, you, did you still haven't given him some of his tools back? <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, well, we we have a good show today and we will hear from worker organizers from the first Starbucks to file for a union election in Missoula. 
And we will look at what organized workers are doing elsewhere, too. That's a whole lot more for your community radio dollar. It certainly is. Community radio is an unbeatable value. I look forward to hearing the interviews as well as the rest of the show. Our word of the week is worker-led organizing. So maybe it's like two and a half words because (laughs) one's hyphenated. (laughs) Right. And of course, this is a major theme of this show. We have not talked too much about unions lately, so it's time to catch up with some exciting labor news. Spot on, Jim. The workers' movement is continuing to make new gains, and not only in the U.S., but around the world as well. Hmm. So what do we mean by worker-led organizing? That's a new term, huh, Mark? A new Um, concept? Not so new, actually. Okay. Um, But maybe new because it's uh, it was common in the past and um, was forgotten oh, for a long time. Gotcha. Um, it simply means that the bulk of organizing any workplace is done by the workers in that workplace. Okay, so how is this different from how unions are usually organized? And I guess I'm talking about in the current era. Yes, in the current era. Well, for starters, a big difference is who is doing the organizing. Many, if not most unions, engage in a kind of top-down organizing method. Union staff are responsible for most of the work in this model. They are highly trained and are paid to do the job. That is an advantage as most workers do not have a great amount of free time to do organizing. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Speaking as a former union workers in all kinds of professions and trades and skill levels. What are the disadvantages of the top-down method of worker organizing? Well, for one, often the paid union organizer is someone that workers are not familiar with. This means that somehow trust must be built up among the workers with the paid organizer, and that can take time. Because organizing means getting someone to join a collective plan of action which could put them at risk of being disciplined or fired, uh, despite this being illegal in most countries in the world, including the U.S. For a worker to put themselves at risk of being fired for an organizing drive, they must trust the organizer. Oh, indeed. And that makes sense. What's another disadvantage of the top-down worker organizing? Well, the top-down method, even when the workers win the representation vote, tends to create a union structure that is also top-down. This means a union driven by the union staff and elected leadership and not by the rank and file. This kind of top-down union is a classic example of how business unionism is perpetuated. Business or service unions, service model unions, uh, which are most unions in the U.S., have the elected leadership and staff set agendas for meetings, negotiate for the workers with employers, resolve grievances for the workers, and generally act as advocates for their members. What this means is that the rank-and-file members of the unions don't control their own union, nor Mm. do they develop the skills and experience to do these things. The membership becomes dependent on the staff to do most anything. That's disturbing. Mm. That that must be kind of recent. Well, 
Uh, yeah, but if you think about it, it's been around since the fifties. Okay, uh, it's okay, been yeah. It's it's been no, real. That's cr- not recent then. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not so recent. Okay. But but if you think about it, it's it's um, it, you know, it's kind of like a, a business union. Is the model mm-hmm. is the the union does it for the workers. It's like providing a service for the workers, and the workers don't have to do anything but pay their dues, basically, or vote the way that union leadership asks. I mean, Mm -hmm. this this is a really common experience among workers and unions. Yeah, it sure is. Back back in the Boeing days, when they were paying dividends, the unions were great because they were a parallel professional developmental system. Mm-hmm. So that so the union training was being made available to people that didn't look very much different than you know the curriculum looked like for um, the the you know ground floor of the of the management scheme. Right, and in mm-hmm. fact, there's a lot of parallels to that. For instance, the in Missoula, um, it's very common for the head of the firefighters union. Uh, to then become the uh, uh, the fire chief. Oh, uh, that's a great and, idea. And that was that, and the same with the police. And that was mm-hmm. for a while. That was the police, not any longer. But the firefighters, that that's pretty much the case. Um, so, but, but there, uh, uh, may I just interrupt here because I I know we need we've got a lot of stuff to do. But this matter of business unionism also has another disadvantage, right? And that is. Uh, or at least a lot of people think that the people who are making the decision for the union do not really know what's going on with the workers, right? Oh, yes. And they become more loyal to the to the owners, the employee mm-hmm. bosses, than they are to the workers. And there's an issue that everyone since William Z. Foster, whose book <laughs> I'm reading now. All right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's a very not pleasant looking white guy. And it's hard for me to pick up that book every time. <laughs> it's yeah. the not pleasant looking part that bothers that's... me. But uh, but in any case, that's what his, his issue yeah. was, of course, back in the 20s and the 30s right. and the 40s was uh, and... leadership that was not radical. And if you look mm. at the if you look at at some some of the leadership of the United Auto Workers in the in the recent oh, past, yes. they have they they've been pulling down two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, and a lot of them got thrown into uh, prison for corruption because they yep. identified with the corporate heads of Ford, GM, and whatever yes. Chrysler is called anymore, um, Stellantis, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It just rolls off the tongue, Stellantis. But um, <laughs> the, uh, but but I, they, I they hope identi- it's not contagious. Yeah. Well, they it, it, so the leaders identified more with the uh, corporate heads than they did with their rank mm-hmm. and file, and that's just plain. Yeah. That's that is where business union leads, actually. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, 1981. 1981, the the oh. um, air traffic controllers. Oh, Patco. Who uh, could forget? Yeah, yeah. A, um, a, an organizer in Missoula told me several years ago when I was still there or confirmed for me something that I had read, which was that the um, the union leadership was actually on the side of Reagan at that time. Oh. And I was so surprised and incensed in that. And he said, Linda, get over it, right? So, but that, <laughs> I, and I think it has given labor a bad, a bad um, mm-hmm. 
reputation. In yeah, I, I, I absolutely, absolutely, it does. Yeah, and uh, and and that and that the uh, Patco Union was because they did not understand how to organize, had absolutely no capacity to mm-hmm. fight. Plus, they had endorsed Reagan for sure. I think they and and so that shows you how far political endorsements go. I I must interject here, and and this is not part of the. We can discuss this later, but okay. the AFL CIO has just come out to endorse Biden for president, and sure. my first reaction is, well, yeah, he's a union buster, but he's our union buster. Exactly. Exactly. Oh boy. Yep. Yeah, so Reagan well, was. Probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we have um, yeah. one of the one of the other disadvantages of the top-down method of worker organizing in relation to our political economic system of neoliberal capitalism. It's a truism to say that the only way that workers can overcome this nasty and disintegrating system is for workers to liberate themselves. No one can do this for workers as the top-down organizing model attempts to do. As union organizer and socialist Eugene Debs, Eugene V. Debs, I I know you like me, Jim, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, once said, I am not a labor leader. I do not want you to follow me or anyone else. If you are looking for a Moses to lead you out of this capitalist wilderness, you will stay right where you are. I would not lead you into the promised land if I could, because if I led you in, someone else would lead you out. You must use your heads as well as your hands and get yourself out of your present condition as it is now the capitalists use your heads and your hands, end quote. That is absolutely brilliant. That's That's like the missing line from the from the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yes. Wow, that's a good one, Jim. I like that. Um, yep. Uh, so does worker-led organizing resolve some of these problems of top-down organizing models? I, I think so. Um, for starters, the need for professional and experienced organizers is very real. Um, most workers don't have the experience or the knowledge of tra- traversing the minefield of employer union busting, which is, according to the Economic Policy Institute, a $340 million industry in 2022 alone. Union busting is mainly done by attorneys who advise employers how to suppress union organizing drives or to decertify already existing unions. These are formidable barriers for worker organizing but are not impossible or even effective barriers if you have savvy organizers. A feature of worker-led organizing is the training and education of rank-and-file workers by experienced organizers necessary to effectively counter union busting, empowering workers to learn the knowledge and skills necessary to organize is key. Hmm. What's another advantage of worker-led organizing? Well, I mentioned trust earlier as organizing requires people to move out of their accustomed comfort zone. This issue is usually resolved with worker-led organizing. Here, natural or organic leaders within the workplace are identified and recruited as organizers. Usually, these are the best workers or the longest-term workers who command respect among a portion, if not all, of the workforce. 
These natural leaders are recruited and trained to do the bulk of the organizing work because they are already trusted by at least some of the workers. Yeah, excellent point. And it reminds me of the organizing effort in um, Birmingham and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, and yeah. How they, how they went for celebrity uh, <laughs> visibility when if they they should have paid closer attention to their workforce and found who are the activists and the fire plugs. And the leaders, people who are and the leaders. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's a leadership is a little different than activism, but yeah, I, Jim, you're right. Yeah, on okay, the yeah. No, you're, and you're right. Leadership and activism are not necessarily tied together. Mm-hmm. There are more advantages to worker-led organizing um, besides Jim. Um, another one is that this method empowers workers within the union. Worker-led organizing lends itself to enabling workers to better address their issues on the job as they have a direct voice in the planning and implementation of the organizing drive, thereby overcoming you know, either remote or uh, employer-identified union leadership, right? Uh, workers develop their own knowledge and experience and so lose most of their dependency on the union leadership and staff. The worker-led organizing also tends to create more democratic rank-and-file controlled union organizations. Is there more? Jim, there's always more. <laughs> oh, Jim. <laughs> I, yeah. I set you up for that one. Um, <laughs> um because the need for organizers far outstrip the means to pay salaries to them, recruiting leaders and training them to be unpaid on-the-job organizers helps solve this dilemma. And the experience and knowledge gained from worker-led organizing is essential for all workers to gain the tools to win their own liberation from neoliberal capitalism. This is truly where the means help determine the ends. Yeah, and this is, of course, what Jane McAlevey talks about in all of her books, No Shortcuts and all of that, that you look for the person who's maybe not the activist, but you look for the person who is respected most by mm -hmm. their group of workers. And, and they're the ones who can move the workers to become activists on their own. Yeah, I was just reading something else which talked about how Marx talked of two different kinds of change change in the circumstances and change in the workers. And that ah. if you worked as part of the struggle, you yourself would be changed, right? You would mature into a different kind of hmm. person and a different yeah. kind of struggler, right? So yes, Jane McAlevey would be saying, amen, brother here, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. she would. No, yeah. I would. The, the, your leaders have got to come from the community. Right. I would burst into song and say, sweet Jane. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and Jim, I'm surprised. that. Um, oh, we won't ahead. have you do a musical interlude here. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a better voice than Lou Reed anyway. <laughs> so... so uh, so, Mark, can you give us an example of worker-led organizing? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> for example, the organizing efforts at Starbucks, Amazon, Black Coffee, and many other places are good worker-led organizing efforts. Um, here is an article written by Dusty Christensen that further illustrates what we mean by worker-led organizing. Um, this was published by the magazine oh. In These Times on June 12th. 
And I include this because I think it gives a real life picture to what we were just talking about. Um, In February, this is from the article, quote, in February, after five years of organizing under the radar, members of the nation, Harvard academic workers, and that is the Harvard University, the Mm -hmm. richest university in the world, um, the members of the nation, Harvard academic workers, officially went public with their intent to unionize. The road to going public wasn't always straight away. In January, as the group of non-tenure track teaching and research employees moved closer to announcing their drive, union member Kara Fulton and her fellow organizers were having as many feelings of discouragement as they were elation. She said, I felt like we were kind of working on our own, end quote. But then later in July, other workers from across the Harvard campus and other Boston area unions put fuel to their fire at a quickly organized roundtable event that the Harvard Academic Workers Solidarity Committee put together to draw insight and encouragement from other organizers, including Harvard dining hall workers and Boston University graduate students. It wasn't long after that, Harvard academic workers went public with its union drive on February 6th, asking colleagues to sign union cards in an effort to organize thousands of workers at the country's richest university. The workers are organizing with the United Automobile, Aerospace, and Agricultural Implement Workers of America, or the UAW, as we had talked about. And the union will include all eligible researchers, lecturers, and other non-tenure track workers. Said Fulton, a postdoctorate fellow in the school's neurobiology department, we all sort of left very lifted up. We knew people had been there before us, and we were just the next in line trying to get a union and getting the benefits that we deserve. It was really powerful. It was definitely a turning point for us, end quote. Organizers are currently still in the process of collecting union cards from workers. If successful in winning recognition of their union, the nearly 6,000 Harvard academic worker members would total almost the entire number of workers who newly unionized with the UAW in 2022. Mm -hmm. According to federal data compiled by the Miami University political science professor Kevin Runig, And key to getting them over the final hurdle to going public, according to several organizers, were the solidarity efforts of other workers, both in the UAW and from other unions who attended that roundtable forum. Fellow organizer Sarah Feldman, who works as a preceptor teaching Yiddish at Harvard, (laughs) told in these times earlier this year, quote, it's a great example of why people should trust themselves, even if they've never organized a union before. That was one of the most important things to come out of that forum, building the confidence of the organizers who attended, confirming that they do know what they're doing and that they have instincts that are right and that they should have the agency in driving their campaign in determining the shape of their organization, end quote. So there's the worker-led part right there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as union density continues its decades-long decline in the United States, dipping from 10.3% of the workers in 2021 to 101 in 2022, according to federal statistics, organizers across the country are looking for ways to reverse that trend. And in some of the most high-profile organizing drives taking place across the country, there's evidence that rank-and-file unionists organizing one another has helped make a significant difference. 
In April 2022, there was the worker-run independent Amazon labor union that became the first ever successful ever to organize a warehouse at the online retail behemoth. That victory came amid a deluge of Starbucks workers organizing and winning elections across the country, beginning in December 2021. The model driving the Starbucks surge was based on worker organizers from stores that had already gone public with their union drives, meeting with workers from other shops who had expressed an interest in unionizing. Other unions have even begun to formalize this kind of member-led organizing. That's the case in the News Guild, which in 2018 began training rank-and-file workers who had just unionized their own workplaces to become member organizers who then worked to unionize other shops across the country. Since that program began, the News Guild has seen explosive growth in new Mm. workplace organizing. From 2015 through 2017, the union organized a total of 1,025 new workers, according to numbers the union shared in these times. From 2018 through 2020, that number jumped to 4,239. That's uh, like four times as many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's, that's not Amazing. geometric, right? That's, that's exponential Amazing. at this rate. Yeah. yeah. Um, a record 2,128 workers unionized with the News Guild in 2021, and another 2012 joined the union the following year. Stephanie Basile, the senior campaign lead for the News Guild, said that the union would have never been able to meet that moment of mass organizing without member organizers. Basile said, we should use this moment of really exciting activity to just get a bunch of people as trained up as possible so that we have rank and file workers who can organize with their coworkers, who can build something from the ground up, who can re-energize an already existing shop and build up a new shop, mm. end quote. Basile noted that the News Guild is hardly the first union to empower oh. members to organize their industries. As one example, she said that the Guild's parent union, the Communication Workers of America, trained brigades of AT&T workers to go out and talk to non-union workers about organizing. Teachers unions, and we've noted the Chicago Teachers Union and the United yes. Teachers of Los Angeles, Uh, The Teamsters and others, including Unite Here, have developed similar programs. In the case of Starbucks organizing, the rank-and-file energy behind the organizing efforts at Starbucks also inspired the Harvard academic workers. When Starbucks workers went on strike for more than two months in Boston last fall, Feldman said that the picket line drew labor activists from across the city to the same place, where they were able to foster connections and share tips from their own organizing work. This is, I mean, this is how organic mm-hmm. organizing happens. Yep. yep. Some, of the, some of the workers who attended the Harvard Academic Workers Roundtable Forum in January of this year were connected with that organizing effort through the Starbucks strike network, Feldman added. Uh, Feldman said of the Starbucks strike, quote, it facilitated connections between the kind of union members who are interested in solidarity and interested in reaching out to other unions or helping or answering questions. Those are often the people who best understand what it takes to have a powerful democratic worker-run labor union. So they're also the people who can be very helpful to talk to, end quote. Uh, The article continues, the grassroots organizers who showed up to the Harvard Academic Workers Roundtable brought not only motivation, but also 
some technical know-how, according to postdoctorate fellow Navina Karusala. She said that she's never been part of a union recognition campaign before, and while you can know in theory what is going to happen, there are still day-to-day organizing questions that union members felt like they couldn't answer themselves, like how to organize a solidarity rally, for example. Uh, Karusala said, quote, all of these questions were bouncing around, and I feel like the roundtable just did so much to kind of show the range of experiences. It also helped, she added, to make the organizers feel confident in the work we had done so far, end quote. The, um, almost done here, the (laughs) Harvard academic workers did end up helping organize two solidarity rallies a week after going public. Union organizers from across the city attended, including bus drivers, Starbucks employees, and fellow higher ed workers. And and is, as often the case for workers looking to unionize, the stakes for the Harvard academic workers are high. Thomas Dichter, a lecturer in history and literature at Harvard, said that the monthly daycare bill for his two children is higher than his entire monthly paycheck for his half-time teaching position. Speaking to In These Times while on the bus to work after dropping his children off, Dichter noted that the Boston housing market is incredibly expensive. He said, quote, that's a lot of motivation for me, end quote. Dichter said that Harvard academic workers members recognize the vital role they play in keeping the university functioning and want to leverage that role to have a seat at the table instead of just being informed of decisions after administrators have already made them. And they're making progress, he added, through rank and file organizing. Dichter said, quote, I've been involved with this campaign for about four and a half years. We've spent a lot of time having one-on-one conversations after another between workers. That took a while, but the amount of support and enthusiasm is huge, end quote. Feldman said that kind of gra- that kind of ground-up organizing is important because while union staff organizers, organizers play vital roles in campaigns, At the end of the day, only workers can bring the authenticity needed to win. Uh, uh, Feldman said, quote, you know your workplace, you know your colleagues, your coworkers, and you know your capacity for what you can get done. And that is always going to have to be up to the rank and file to assess and determine and plan, end quote. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that business about how you know your own workers, you know your own community, but also the stuff about solidarity. I mean, I think it's one thing that maybe we don't talk about much in the United States is international worker solidarity, right? So it can be that workers just sort of go on strike or whatever they do in order to achieve benefits for themselves. Right. But the idea that we're all in this as workers together and that we need to be solid with each other and we work for all workers is really important, I think. So when when the other unions came in to support the Harvard employees, um, that's sort of what we were seeing there, right? Yeah. We're in it together. Yeah. Yeah. Having just gone through Memorial Day, which mm. should be Labor Day, but isn't. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, jiggling around our country's opportunity to to participate in an international 
cause and struggle. Um, should we really be surprised that people are confused about what solidarity is? No, because it's the narrative. We are sure not is. international workers. We are mm -hmm. exceptional U.S. people who don't. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There, there's a saying about uh, us Americans, and that is, um, we all believe that we're just temporarily poor. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. William Steinbeck. That's a good one. Yeah. Right. You oh, can't get yeah. social. You can't get. Was that uh, Steinbeck? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. I think they're temp temporary temporarily embarrassed billionaires. Exactly. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, doesn't that say right. it all? <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, I live in the South now, and uh, the South is that is an, notorious. Is that an oxymoron? <laughs> and the South is notorious for being unfriendly to uh, organized labor, and um, and therefore very cheap for corporations. So um, mm -hmm. lots of corporations move into the South because they can get cheap labor and so on. Um, but I wanted to talk just a little bit, if I may, Mark, about mm -hmm. uh, worker organizing that's going on in the South, because it is happening. And um, I guess it's part of the whole large wave, uh, but it's really encouraging to me. Um, we tend to be the most anti-union culture in the country. Many of the organizing drives here are using the worker-led organizing tactics we've been discussing. This um, is from a June 13th article by Tom Conway, which was published by Portside. I can't remember exactly where it came from originally, but um, Conway says, at the Bluebird Corporation, 1,400 workers at the electric bus manufacturer voted overwhelmingly this spring to join the United Steelworkers, USW. Additionally, about 500 ramp agents, truck drivers, and other workers at Charlotte Douglas International Airport in North Carolina here voted to form a union in May. And I can assure you that if they went on strike, they would cause a hell of a problem at Charlotte Airport. So did first responders in Virginia and utility workers in Georgia and Kentucky earlier this year. Last year, workers at Lowe's in Louisiana launched groundbreaking efforts to unionize the home improvement giant and workers in Knoxville, oh. Tennessee. Yeah. Workers in Knoxville, Tennessee unionized the first Starbucks in the South. And that's the end of quote. And how are they succeeding where others, others have long failed? One reason is training workers themselves on how to organize through worker schools and academies. This is an mm. excerpt coming up from an April 26th article written by the Southern Workers Assembly about worker schools and worker assemblies in the South, with a focus on the worker school held from April 21st to 23rd in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I've read some uh, reports about these worker assembly schools and worker schools, and they really are exciting because they're much bigger than just how do you change your workplace? There, how do you change society and how did we get rid of poverty and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, here's the quote. Ed Bruno is a member of the Southern Workers Assembly Coordinating Committee, former United Electrical Workers Director of Organizing and former National Nurses United Southern Regional Direct 
director. He said, there are 118 million private sector workers in this country. Last year, only 65,000 participated in union recognition elections. By that math, it would take 2,000 years to organize half of the working class. We have to move people to collective action despite prospects for government recognition. And uh, what that probably really means is prospects, lack of prospects for German mm -hmm. for, uh, government recognition. It isn't the election that gives us the union. The election gives us a ticket to the dance. The union is the dance. We need yes. to be talking to workers in the beginning about work stoppages, picketing, and strikes. We need to start <laughs> by workers realizing they can depend on one another by doing it. And I always think how hard the hard the path is after they win the election, they've still got to get that contract which must right. be just a hellish process um, wow. to fight that out. I'm sure you've done that before, Mark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bruno continued, we want to make the shop issue a public issue. It gives the boss a problem that he can't bottle it up in his office. The question of maximizing our power is crucial. So we have to start to build networks of workers in strategic industries of our region. We did this in Texas where there were no union hospitals. Now there are 15. We didn't start by organizing a union. We started out by organizing the National Union's Organizing Committee in Texas, Florida, and Tennessee, right? And the other thing that McAlevey says is you've got to tie in with your community, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Community needs also to be involved uh, because you're working for the whole community. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting about the workers' schools that are happening uh, here in the South. And um, um, I just think it's it's the future of, um, Absolutely. of unions because they need to be more diverse. And these are bringing in a lot of low-paid workers who just have never organized before. Yep. Thanks, Mark, for letting me bring that in. Yeah, no, I think great. it's great. And it, it's a nice segue into my um, aero machinist and SPIA experience at Boeing is that they primarily trained me to be a better professional. They were doing Boeing's job for them. Right. <laughs> so, but true. So, Jim, did you, was there any, um, and so that's part of the machinist union, right? Um, mm -hmm, right. IAM. Was there, was there any, did you, come across any uh like learn how to organize or or to, to how to how to act on the shop floor to resolve grievances anything like that did you ever yeah there was stewards training also oh yeah stewards yeah yeah so that's you know that's your bread and butter and another dynamic is um there was exhaustive training surrounding strikes and people huh. that wanted to move up in the union would be the um, you know, be the mentors or like the captains of who was out on the picket line, mention huh. their names three times in every sentence and say, <laughs> this is why we're here. We all need each other. You know, straight up speech, you know, Fidel Castro couldn't have done it any better. Right. And and that right. was, you know, that was the third leg of the stool. Right. Is the teaching people this that your your religious experience as a union member. Your 
<laughs> you know, your 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 consecration is on the is next to the burn barrel holding a sign. <laughs> that's when you've arrived. That's, that's right. when yeah. you that's when you really reach fellowship in unity. Yep. Yeah, it's nothing no teacher like experience. That's yeah. true. No. Or striking in the rain. <laughs> yeah, or, or in a blizzard. Seattle always cooperated. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving, mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toil to earn. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever. Okay, we are um, now uh, in our interview part of our show, Voice of the People, Radio by and for the 99%. And we are so pleased to have uh, one of the uh, organizing committee uh, at the Missoula uh starbucks that is trying to organize a union in their shop um and that's the uh, brook street uh <clears throat> shop and um our organizer here is kate alexander hi kate welcome to voice of the people hi thank you happy to be here great well um 
could you tell us a little something about yourself just briefly? Yeah, um, I have been living here in Missoula for, I think, about five or six years, um, and I'm, I've am i loved it so far. It's been really wonderful. Um, I have family uh, who lived here for, like, decades uh, before, and it's kind of nice to, to return back. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I think that um, <laughs> something about myself... Um, I am studying at the University of Montana. I'm studying creative writing. And with that, I'm kind of hoping to go into editing and publishing. Um, less the writer side of things, more the behind the scenes kind of work, which I think kind of carries through to a lot of things um, and a lot of projects in my life. Um, particularly in this case, like the union, I think that that has a lot of stuff. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, great. And uh, um, we don't pay anything on this show, but we, <laughs> we, we are look we are looking for uh, some uh, writer and some people to take up, ha- you know, half of the half of the show. So, you know, just think, can, can, put that in your cap. Um, you but you're busy now uh, with uh, uh, organizing and and you have a scheduled uh, election, a union election coming up real soon. Yeah, we do. So we just got the news yesterday, actually, from the NLRB. They announced that our election date officially will be the 23rd of June, which is very exciting. We kind of have been waiting a while for that official date just due to some kind of issues with red tape in the process of agreeing on things like the stipulation agreements and we initially thought it was going to be the 21st that ended up falling through a little bit but it's a real relief to kind of finally have that election date and have something to like really look forward to indeed indeed so um let's go back to sort of the beginning of that well and 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 maybe um you personally uh we've worked together um on uh, a boycott of City Brew Coffee here in Missoula. Um, j- just talk a little bit about that experience and how that's led up to you being an organizer at Starbucks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, I, I I promise that I don't intentionally go looking for trouble at coffee companies. Um, <laughs> but I, I do feel like at any job that I have, this kind of labor organizing kind of follows me wherever I go. I think I just give off that that impression. But with the City Brew situation, I was working there in 2020, and it was just the very beginning of the COVID pandemic. We didn't really know how severe it was, what was going to happen, what was going on, the level of risk that we were kind of dealing with as employees. And essentially what I did is I made a petition, and I talked to people all through my store about it. Basically, we requested um more safety precautions and potential hazard pay potentially closing the store um until a kind of solution was found so we weren't constantly exposing ourselves to something that we really didn't have a good understanding of and i sent that petition out to over 200 coworkers of mine who also work with the company in i believe three different states um and I sent that email out. I spent a couple hours (laughs) one night sending those out and sending the petition out, seeing if anybody across stores were interested. 
And the next morning while I was working on shift, I get an email from the CFO of the company asking for a conversation with me. And I said to him, yeah, we would love to talk to you as a group. And he's like, nope, just just you and me. And so I got on that phone call. And essentially what happened is I kind of tried to lead with the organizing stuff and really pursue that conversation in good faith, hoping that they would do the same. What ended up happening, though, is pretty quickly into the conversation, I ended up getting fired. Effective immediately, I had to go get my stuff that very day. Um, And it was a real whirlwind, I think. And I ended up contacting you and a couple other people around town and kind of figuring out where to go from there. You and I had already been working on the organizing beforehand and the petition and how to go about doing that, which was incredibly helpful. And what uh, what I did is I filed a um, complaint with the NLRB and it ended up taking about a year for the case to be resolved, but they ended up settling. And it was a really great turnout. It was really interesting. The NLRB found several different labor violations other than my termination from the job. And they ended up having to write different, rewrite different portions of their employee handbook. Um, so kind of taking an approach to like leaving my places of employment better than I found them is kind of been my <laughs> my mode of operation ever since yeah. then. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's that's commendable. And in NLRB is uh, for our listeners, National Labor Relations Board. And they oversee essentially uh, uh, there's laws regulating how unions can act and how employers can act in in the process of uh, forming a union and uh, and and acting as a union. So um, that's very cool. Now, how so? W- w- what would you say that experience uh, informed you when it came to uh, Starbucks? I think I would say I'm a little bit less afraid of retaliation. It's a lot easier for me now to kind of move forward and not maybe be restrained by concern or fear about what might happen if I try to make changes in my workplace for the better, you know? And I think that that's kind of a pretty massive change. I also think that that experience really opened me up to see like the kind of things that can be done in the workplace and the kind of, you know, power that us employees have, you know, when we come together and kind of try to move forward in making a more democratic workplace where we can have a role in the conversation of of what's going on, especially as the people who are basically running the operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, obviously, Starbucks is a much larger corporation than City Brew. Um, was that daunting to you at all or? I wouldn't say it was more daunting per se. I have, I have had a great time working at the company. Personally, I I really enjoy my job and there is a lot to love about it from the customers to coworkers to just kind of running around, always having a task to do. But I would say that honestly, with a lot of the coverage lately of the company, and especially in terms of union busting campaigns and violations found by the National Labor Relations Board, it's been a little bit less intimidating despite the size of the company, because I know that there has been so much coverage of what has happened and what's going on. I mean, the former CEO, Howard Schultz, 
went and was questioned by the Senate about Starbucks's labor practices, which was kind of a pretty big moment. And I think that that kind of helped propel us a little forward a little bit quicker. Yeah. So what what are the specific issues that you understand um, workers had at the at the uh, um, Brook Street Starbucks that gave rise to them signing union authorization cards? Yeah, I think a one issue that is like generally like a very collective one that everyone feels the strain of, regardless of whether or not they're supportive of the union, I would say is the issue of understaffing. Um, not being adequately staffed can make the job extremely difficult. And even if we have somebody call out, we're down a person or two, we're still held liable for meeting time quotas of making sure people get through the drive through quickly enough, of making sure every order is handcrafted perfectly and made super standard. Um, we're expected to like really make an effort to get to know customers and our, our customer connection score went down a little bit recently and in the sense that people didn't feel like we were trying hard enough to get to know them. Uh, so little things like that with the, with the surveys that people take uh, about their experience really have a massive impact. And for us to create a better experience, we need to have adequate staffing so we, we can do all of the things that make the store run well and effectively. And I think that that's something that's really felt by everybody. Another issue is the issue of safety, um, which is maybe a little bit unexpected for, you know, coffee buyers to hear because like what could be going on in a coffee shop? That's that's particularly uh, a safety hazard. Right. Um, but in general, dealing with customers who are maybe a bit aggressive can be very difficult. There have been some threats made that I have heard about. There has been various forms of harassment and in, including like sexual harassment. And the issue is, is that there has to be a certain number of documented incidents and reported incidents before we are able to take action to ask somebody to not come back to the store. And personally, I believe that that sets uh, us up for a lot of risk um, and a lot of unnecessary, you know, kind of dread, I suppose, because you don't really know what to expect um, when there's somebody with that kind of track record coming in, especially coming in every day. Um, I also know that uh, one of my partners is what they call, you know, coworkers and employees at the store. Um, they call us partners. And one of my partners at the store has seen multiple overdoses happen in our bathrooms. Um, there was someone recently that I saw who came in and passed out in our bathroom and was in there for like an hour. And just general safety things like that are kind of a big concern. And yeah, that's those are kind of the, the main ones. Um, I do know that a lot of partners who are long-term at the store have a real frustration with how the company interacts with them and interfaces with them. Even people who are in supervising or management positions, there's a lot of issues of people telling the company over and over and over again, hey, this is what we need. This is what would make our store run better. This is what would keep our bruises happier so we don't have such a high turnover rate and that sort of thing. And they just kind of continually get shot down or left behind in lieu of other things. 
And yeah, I think that that kind of frustration can really build up and can be a pretty big motivating factor in why people are supportive of the union. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. And so you um, you have three issues there, and none of them uh, are wages. I, I imagine, though, wages are also an issue, but um, it's interesting. Yes, I, I actually have a an interesting point about that. I, I don't know the specifics myself because I've only been with the company for a year. Um, and I I did start at a significantly lower wage than I expected uh, for having several years of barista experience before working at Starbucks, um, which was surprising to me. Um, but, you know, you need a job. <laughs> um, and I, I have heard stories of partners who did not receive raises for several years and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, and with inflation, um, we've covered on the show the causes of the inflation, which is not workers making more money, but, um, but because of those freezes, those lack of wage increases, inflation is eaten away at, at your wages. So they don't buy as much. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I started at 15 an hour and I believe currently their policy is that they do yearly raises at the end of like the final quarter of the year. Um, and I had a raise of 45 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, so not really necessarily keeping up with the times very well. I do know that the general minimum wage across all Starbucks uh, locations is $15 an hour. Now that may vary from store to store and their own policies, but the company policy is currently a minimum wage of 15 an hour, which I think most people are aware that that is no longer really an adequate minimum wage in a lot of parts of the country. Yeah, I, I think including Missoula, too. I, I'll bet the uh, Absolutely. a living wage for just a single person with no children is, you know, probably 16 or 17 dollars an hour. So um, and Missoula is no stranger to low low wage work. Uh, it's. I, I often say this is the capital of low wage work. Um, well, uh, so were, are there any other kind of issues that that gave rise to this? Uh, it sounds like on a positive side, you you want to have a say in how um, the workplace is run, basically. I mean, or how how your working conditions are and such. Yeah, I would definitely say so. I think that I didn't come on board the organizing committee or even I didn't have an awareness of the union until about February of this year. But this is something that has been going on since December for this specific effort. There have been efforts in the past that have kind of like faded away, mostly because of the turnover at our store. However, I think that kind of the inciting incident for like getting everybody to sign union cards so we can file the petition through the National Labor Relations Board was very much kind of influenced by the understaffing. I saw partners coming in like feeling pretty exhausted right off the bat, um, expected to work like seven, eight hour shifts despite not having enough people. And that hasn't really changed even as we've entered like the busiest season for Starbucks with summertime and tons of people coming in like all day. And I think that that 
was kind of the big push that influenced her. Gotcha. Now, um, you are you are one of uh, three people on an organizing committee, uh, OC as you like to call it, um, and you all work there, right? So um, as as I said before our interview, that the show is really focusing on worker worker led organizing and why that's important and what and what are the advantages to that. Um, describe a little something on how uh, you're working with the national group. Uh, and, and how that works a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are working with uh, someone who is a union representative from uh, Pittsburgh, I believe. His name is Jacob. He's been super helpful, really wonderful in providing insight into how a Starbucks union kind of functions, how the process of you know passing uh, a yes vote for a union happens. He has been working with like, like he's worked with 13 stores so far for union efforts. He's been with the company for like five plus years. So, so, J- so Jacob works, Jacob works in a, yes. in a, in a Starbucks store in Pittsburgh, maybe. Yes. So he, he works as a barista. So he kind of has like this firsthand experience that can be super helpful, um, especially in breaking through the Starbucks lingo which can be a little bit confusing to people who are kind of outside that sphere. Um, Yeah, that's been incredibly helpful. We also have a lawyer that we can keep in touch with and learn about kind of the little specific details of all of this stuff. And that has been incredibly helpful as well. He was kind enough to even give us like his personal phone number in case we need like super quick responses, that sort of thing. And yeah, they they have provided a lot of help um, and a lot of kind of structural planning. They've they taught us some pretty solid methods of how to organize your workplace, how to start talking to your coworkers through kind of agitating and seeing, you know, what are the issues at our store? What are people frustrated about? Why are we all kind of exhausted? Why are we at this point? And talking about it with your coworkers and kind of like really encouraging them to be like, there is something that we can do to change this. And, you know, why Why wouldn't we? And we obviously care about each other. We care about the store that we work at. And I think that that was a really helpful way of approaching things as well as kind of encouraging people to open up about the things that they hear uh, that are negative about unions. There has been quite a bit of rhetoric given to us by the company. Even before we filed for an election, we had some posters put up that detailed, like, this is what a union card is. It's a legal document that you're signing, but you can ask for it back if you change your mind and stuff like that. Um, Kind of the common arguments against unionizing Starbucks, according to Starbucks, is you could potentially bargain away your benefits, which, like, why would we want to do that? (laughs) Those those are those are there for a reason. Um, And that's kind of one of those arguments. And, you know, if you're not super aware of how a union works or what a union would look like in your workplace, that can sound really scary. And it can be like, oh, like, I don't want this to risk me losing my benefits, especially when Starbucks people are often there for the benefits. Uh, So that sort of stuff. And just kind of being prepared to really educate ourselves about those sorts of questions and having answers for them so that we can kind of inoculate people against that kind of rhetoric and half-truths, I would say. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've what you're describing is both your experience at City Brew, the previous coffee place, and um, learning about, you know, um, from Starbucks United, right? That's the name of the, the group. Um, that that has helped that that's been enough. And then your own kind of interest, right? All of that has really helped you move ahead and actually do this work, right? Yeah, definitely. I think something else that is kind of a more personal thing that kind of helps me uh, be motivated towards doing this work is I think I kind of have a predisposition to support of unions. Um, Like I I mentioned, I have family who worked and lived here in Montana a couple decades ago, and my great-grandfather worked as a miner here. He did a lot of union work. Uh, He did a lot of union work while he was, you know, kind of doing construction work in Yellowstone and down around Gardner and things like that. And I think that growing up, I kind of just had like this natural assumption where I was like, oh, this is like a normal thing. Um, It's just kind of a part of life. It's part of like work. And I think for a while I associated it with jobs that are kind of manual labor, maybe high risk stuff. However, like as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that like a union is kind of like bare minimum. <laughs> Having that ability to converse with your management or with corporate and having a say in how things are run and how you are treated, I think is a really vital thing. So I think that that has really informed a lot of it. Yeah, and that's good. And 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 the reason I'm asking this is because obviously um, there may be a lot of interest in forming unions, but there isn't a whole lot of confidence for worker organizers, right? I mean, it, it, there's a support system that's needed, right? And um, and, and plus, I mean, you know, there's, you know, um, I think the other two people on your organizing committee may not have that background you have, but, you know, um, they may have more experience or have learned how to do this kind of thing uh, through the union. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I know one of our committee members has been a part of various committees over the year. Uh, and so she's had like a really helpful insight into what we can expect as we go through this whole process. Mm-hmm. And the other, I think like, in general, I think we all bring various strengths to this, mm-hmm. regardless of like our kind of background knowledge or experience as well. I, I would say that each of us kind of bring different strengths to the entire process. I think that Hayden, for instance, really was able to make a massive push in terms of getting union card signed so we could start this whole thing and really get into the meat of the entire process. And I mean, I think he got like five or six people to sign cards within like two days, which was huge. And it was kind of like getting over that final hill um, to get everything started, which is really incredibly helpful. And both of them have worked there at the store much longer than I have. Um, one of them have been there, I think, for close to a decade. Hayden has been there, I believe, for three years. So I'm kind of like, um, they call they call newer people at Starbucks green beans. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, like, kind of working off the coffee thing, you know. Uh, so as a, as a kind of sort of coming out of that green bean experience myself, coming up on a year of working at Starbucks, 
it's been incredible to kind of have their input on what they have seen, what they've experienced, how they've seen other stores maybe move toward unionizing and that sort of stuff. So I think it's been really amazing to have both of them on board. Great. Well, and of course, um, the election is is going to be uh, June 23rd. Um, and I, I want to get this in twice, actually, in, into the show. But um, on on the twenty first, there's a solidarity action that's that's happening. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on the twenty first, um, with the help of you and the other wonderful people at the Workers Alliance and at the DSA, um, there is a plan to have a buy-in at our store, which people will come into the lobby and. Oftentimes they'll put their names down as union yes, or some people do union strong, I believe, and just come in, get a cup of coffee, talk to the partners working there about the union, kind of getting the energy up, getting people feeling inspired and hopeful and especially supported. I think that with it having been such a long process and with the delay, a lot of people have been feeling a little, a little tired a little kind of anxious for all of this to happen. And so we have been continuing to have customers really encourage us and let us know how excited they are that we're going to be doing this. Um, and so on the 21st with that buy-in, it's going to be a incredible help, I think. I think it'll be really motivating for a lot of people. And as well with the buy-in method, it also really spikes uh, profits for the store, which sends a very helpful message to the company that, hey, this union is profitable as well, because there's this idea that if you have a union at your store, you're going to make less money. I've had people ask me if our coffee prices are going to go up. And I was like, no, we we really don't have any influence over that. That's all, all corporate. Uh, but yeah, just that sort of thing. It's going to be it's going to be really exciting. And we're really looking forward to it. Great, great. Um, one last thing. So after the election, uh, assuming you win, um, which we, which I hope you do, um, the um, <clears throat> the next step is bargaining a new contract. But even the Buffalo, New York, Starbucks, who were the first ones to win union elections, they don't have a contract either. What uh, what's going on with that? Do you know? Yeah. So. This is kind of one of the downfalls of Starbucks organizing specifically is that the company has not once made a first contract with any of the unions that have been established, um, which is currently being contested by the NLRB. They're really kind of fighting against that to really put the pressure on the company to start doing that. There have been a lot of meetings that have been planned with different stores and a lot of times that have been set and that sort of thing that have really just kind of fallen through. A lot of the times uh, corporate will ask to reschedule or they just won't show up. I've heard stories of organizers on a bargaining committee waiting there for hours before anybody showed up. So these sort of things, these like really intense union busting tactics that even continue after a union is formed are very common with the company. And I think for a lot of people, that can be kind of a scary sort of thing. But I think that as this 
Starbucks Workers United movement has really started to pick up steam, has become such a topic in the news. I think that it's going to be pushing the company towards maybe being a bit more cooperative, I suppose, in the sense that, you know, if, if more and more stores organize, it's going to take them a while to have a contract with everybody. So they might as well get started now, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very practical way of looking at it. It may, uh, you know, uh, just wanted to have listeners understand that having the election isn't is just the beginning, not the not the end of the process. So, um, well, any any last things you'd like to share with with listeners in Western Montana? I don't know if I have anything uh, really specific to share. I just kind of wanted to reiterate um, a thank you for the community support that we've already received and that we're looking forward to on the 21st. It has been like a massive encouragement to a lot of people at our store. And yeah, yeah, uh, we're just we're happy to be here, happy to kind of be leading this front in Missoula and in Montana. Great. Well, well, thank you very much, Kate Alexander, for being with us and best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you too. Well, big news from the Teamsters Union. Um, and you were talking earlier before the interview about stand around burn barrels and there's nothing <laughs> quite like that uh, on strike. But uh, the Teamsters Union in their struggle with United Parcel Service, also known as UPS, um, 97% of Teamster members working for UPS have voted to authorize a strike if they can't get an acceptable collective bargaining agreement with UPS by August 1st. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a yeah, big... that's that's coming. That is coming. That is coming Actually, soon. I'm going to be leaving the Western Hemisphere the afternoon and the day before, so... I'm going to miss all the excitement. Oh, <laughs> but that's too bad. <laughs> um, yeah, they, well, we'll cover more of this in, in future shows, right, as the situation develops for gotcha. sure. Um, if the Teamsters go out on strike, it will involve 340,000 workers and will make it the largest strike in a generation. Big stuff. Yeah, very big stuff. Yep. The Democratic Socialists of America DSA chapters in Montana and across the U.S. are also organizing supporters for a possible strike as well. So we'll be informing people, whoever would like to support the, these workers, um, that you'll have yes. opportunities to do so. Yeah, that's it's going to have some impact in Missoula. <laughs> in all sure. of Montana. In all yeah. of Montana. Yep, you bet. So... You got something else for us, Mark? Yeah. Well, next we go to Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and it's not Halloween. So, um, <laughs> oh, bridge, everybody down. You know that song about the Erie Canal? Oh, the yes. The Erie Never Canal. navigating oh. on the Erie Canal. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I was thinking Boy, of a song about Erie Canal. I was possessed by the spirit. I see. Yes, an eerie spirit. Eerie. Um, yeah. Eerie. Well, we we're 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 not having very good uh, uh, luck with music or treating eerie Pennsylvania with the respect it deserves. But no, we're um, not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
So in Erie is where uh, locomotive manufacturing workers are deciding at this very moment, um, and we're speaking on June 17th, um, about whether or not to go out and strike. This article is written by Alex Press and published in Labor Notes on June 14th. That explains their predicament. Quote, Mm -hmm. as the clock ticked down, the two sides were far apart in their bargaining for a second contract. The first was negotiated when General Electric sold the $4 billion a year division to Wabtec. Wabtec stands for, and Jim, this is, you you should know this. I'm I'm paying close attention, sir. (laughs) I'm getting educated. Wabtec stands for Westinghouse Air Brake Technologies Corporation. All right. Um, But anyway, uh, General Electric sold uh, this. Four billion dollar a year division to Wabtec in 2019, ending more than a century of GE operations in Erie. The United Electrical Workers Union, or the UE, has represented the plant's workers since 1937, the year before it negotiated its first national agreement with GE. Um, and I might add, uh, the UE is one of the unions that. Mm-hmm. Very much employed CIO method of organizing that we've talked about that Jane McAlevey teaches, and they refused to um, evict uh, back when the uh, Taft-Hartley Act was passed in 1947. They uh, wanted to stick with their organizing method and refused to evict any socialists or communists within their ranks. Uh, thereby, oh. thereby being, uh, I'm not sure that they were ever were in the AFL or the CIO, but they were kicked out of the CIO. I know for sure. Uh, and, um, uh, so because they refused to go along with the, uh, Taft-Hartley act. Um, so that's, that's some background on the UE. It's, it, it, yeah. it's <laughs> one, one of the few unions that the, the, uh, the, uh, longshore workers on the West coast are another union <clears throat> that did the same. Um, anyhow, thanks to decades of plant closures, corporate reconfigurations, and outsourcing both overseas and to non-union plants in the U.S., this shop in Erie was the last remaining facility covered by UE's former GE agreement. With less than an hour to go, a federal mediator involved and letters of solidarity flooding in from workers across Wabtec's international supply chain, the union's executive board agreed to a 24-hour extension. The next day, the board announced it would bring Wabtec's final offer to a membership vote on June 22nd. Should members reject it, they will be on strike. At press time, uh, and this is June 14th that this was written, the board had not decided what to recommend. One priority among workers is the right to strike over grievances. They had that right in the GE contract, and while a nine-day strike in 2019 defeated some of Wabtec's most egregious proposals, members ratified a first contract that didn't include it. The result has been a disaster. And I might add, uh, before I go on, that it is very uncommon for union contracts to allow union workers to go on strike over grievances. Usually there's a a no strike, no lockout clause that says that um, uh, that the for the life of the agreement that the employer will not lock out workers and the union would not strike, except for the case of an unfair labor practice strike. 
Um, that's how m- most contracts are, are negotiated. This one did not, or their mm-hmm. previous one, they were allowed to go on strike. And, it, and um, the result of moving toward what most unions do now has been a disaster. Um, the number of, and this is back to the article, the number of grievances has ballooned. A May report from the Illinois School of Labor and Employment Relations found Grievances are more likely to drag on for months or years than they were under GE, and more than twice as likely to be rejected. According to Chief Steward Leo Brezgorowski, I mean, I didn't butcher it. I'm going to have to address some of my long-interred relatives to to help (laughs) us with that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so Chief Steward Leo, uh, Leo G., uh, 95% of, <laughs> I'm sure he gets called that too. Um, 95% of grievances that reach the final step are rejected by Wobtech, forcing the union to go to arbitration at a cost of $9,000 for each arbitration. See where this is leading. Since 2019, around 68 grievances have reached arbitration. The Erie workers rarely struck over grievances when the plant was owned by GE, only four times from 2005 to 2019 for a total of 13 hours. That's not too bad. But the possibility of a strike forced management to treat them with respect. Without it, workers say contract violations are rampant and management does as it pleases. The first contract allowed strikes over timelines timeliness in the grievance process and over any permanent subcontracting or transfer of work. Local 506 President Scott Slauson said Wobtech's latest offer falls well short of the strike rights in the GE contract. Said UE General President Carl Rosen, quote, one of the great tragedies of the American labor movement is that in the McCarthy era, 1947 with the Taft-Hartley Act, most of the labor movement decided to give up the fight over controlling conditions on the shop floor. Rosen continued, that's what's having the right to strike over grievances allows you the ability to keep the employer from imposing their will at any point during a contract while you're stuck and can't do anything until that contract expires, end quote. Um, So, uh, There's also urgent matter, this uh, article continues, also the urgent matter of upgrading locomotives to be less polluting. UE's Erie locals, uh, there's two of them, have been leading the union's green locomotives project. Building green locomotives in Erie would create between 2,600 and 4,300 new Wobtec jobs and three to 5,000 additional jobs in Erie County. The union wants Wobtech to commit to a joint push for higher environmental protection agency standards. But Slauson says that the company has, quote, flat out rejected, end quote, such collaboration. Workers also want to reduce or eliminate the 10-year wage progression for new hires whose lowest paid job starts at $20.47 an hour and insist on a real raise for legacy workers who haven't had one since 2016. With inflation, that's a 19% pay cut, and, hmm. end quote. Yeah. And that's the way it goes. And that's the way it goes sometimes. So um, yeah. anyway, I thought that was really interesting, kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the workers are really pushing for environmental uh, locomotives, and they're 
trying to win over uh, trying to strike over grievances, which is maybe uh, goes counter to what lots of people think about unions. Um, so and the, and the, the laborers. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's also good that there are going to be new jobs in Erie, right? Mm -hmm. if you go Absolutely. Over, if you go environmental, there'll be a whole passel of new jobs, which is good for the union, right? Right, which exactly. Good and right? and good, good for Erie, too, right? Sure, exactly. And the, and the country and the environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I would expect, as somebody that spent time in Erie, that this is a community involvement opportunity you know, par excellence, because Erie has been declining for a hundred years. So this is this is a chance for the community to say, we need this, we need them. Mm -hmm. Keep us in the story. Listen up. We've got a war zone here today, right in our heartland. And across the USA. These multinational bastards don't use tanks and guns, it's true But they've declared a war on us, fight back, it's up to you Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers And it's time we started calling the shots Going to work could be the death of you and me But we're not unarmed our weapon solidarity Jim Beals and Karen Silkwood The list goes on and on With every year that passes 60,000 more gone Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers Oh, it's a war on the workers And it's time we started calling the shots When they boost your copay War on the workers It's a war on 
child labor protection It's a war on the eight-hour day It's a war on occupational health and safety It's a war on social security Now thanks to WTO, GATT, NAFTA, MAI, the IMF and the World Bank It's a worldwide war Oh, it's a war on the workers That was War on the Workers, sung by Anne Feeney. That's right. How about another story, Mark? Sure. So this is this is our last story. Uh, this is our international section here. As, as the massive intermittent transportation strikes ag against lowering the retirement age in France continues, so too the massive strikes across many sectors in Britain. We have covered a bit about these strikes in past shows. However, today... We want to focus our international spotlight on our neighbor to the north, Canada. This was published in Spring Magazine on June 5th, and it fits well with the worker-led organizing theme of our show. It advocates for worker-led organizing as well as building coalitions with community organizations, as Linda had made reference to. Um, this article was written by Peter Hogarth and David Bush. Quote, the Ontario Federation of Labor's Enough is Enough campaign, which launched in January, has been an opportunity to build a broad-based movement to challenge the bosses and build the power to fight for a better Ontario. Not just, I want to make a mm -hmm. point of this, they're not just talking about better union jobs, they're talking about a better province of Ontario. Exactly. The campaign's five core demands are one, real wage increases for all, two, strong public services for all, three, bills we can afford, meaning, you know, bills that you pay, uh, four, mm -hmm. rent control, affordable housing, and five, make the rich pay, have attempted to unite anger in the province on a class basis. On June 3rd, the province-wide day of action for the campaign saw actions across Ontario, including an impressive-sized rally in Toronto. Unions and community groups mobilized thousands to take to the streets. It was a show of force that was a testament to the appetite of workers to unify to take on conservative Ontario Premier Doug Ford's agenda. And the Premier of uh, uh, Canadian provinces are, is like the governors of our states. Mm -hmm. um, the Enough is Enough campaign has led to meetings all over the province and helped activists inside and outside of the union talk to their coworkers and community members through postering, leafleting, coffee chats, and signing people up to get involved on street corners and outside hospitals and grocery stores. That activity has put people who are interested in organizing and building a united fight back against cutbacks and price gouging by the government and corporations into contact with each other. This is the kind of infrastructure we need to be able to build working class power and fight back in Ontario and beyond. One-off protests, no matter how big, will not by themselves deliver significant reforms. Rallies and actions like those on June 3rd are merely moments. Moments are important. They can show us our power. 
They can bring like-minded individuals to network and plan, and importantly, they can help create a network of worker activists who see a united, class-based solution to the problems facing the province. The goal now has to be to strengthen those connections. The campaign has afforded the workers' movement with an opportunity to not only draw new activists, but to forge links between different issues impacting worker lives. One of the great challenges the working class faces in advancing its interest is disunity and sectionalism. Some workers are fighting for better wages, others for more affordable housing, and others for stronger public services. Issue-based campaigning and workplace bargaining are key, but they sometimes lead to working class fragmentation, or what we uh, have been calling lately, putting issues into silos, being siloed, right? Um, the Enough is Enough campaign gives us the chance to build unity and common purpose within the working class. Bargaining issues in unions like wages, job security, and paid sick days can be seen as part of a broader fight that involves the whole class. We can link the fight for rent control and the fight for higher wages and social assistance. Um, over this past year, unions and workers in Ontario have begun to move and take on the cost of living crisis uh, from inflation. <coughs> Excuse me. 2022 saw an uptick in strikes in the number of people participating in strikes and person days lost to work stoppages. A number of high-profile strikes, including the carpenters and education workers strikes in Canada, were animated by the cost of living crisis and driven by the rank and file. This is in stark contrast to the low participation in provincial and municipal elections of that year. The appetite mm. for action to address the many issues facing workers in Ontario exists, but it is also clear that there's much work to be done to rebuild rank and file networks inside of unions to be able to connect that appetite with action. Those of us in the Enough is Enough campaign can't resist, can't resist, can't rest. <laughs> Resist now. <laughs> Resistance is futile. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's isn't that? Oh, that's from uh, that's from uh, Doctor Who, I think. Right. Uh, the oh, if, you, if you know that one, anyway. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so um, those of us in the enough is enough campaign can't rest on our laurels and wait for flare-ups. We need to be taking this campaign into our workplaces and use it as a tool to draw more of our coworkers into activity. In other words, organizing. We yes. can use it we can use it to organize action, push our locals to do more activity, and move away from bureaucratic routines. In this way, the Enough is Enough campaign can be used to build real rank and file networks. Working class militancy is not built in an instance or through declarations. It is built through systematic organizing that is nimble enough to relate to upsurges of wider class activity and consistent enough to build relationships and activity in between those moments. We should have a long-term perspective about building wider networks of activist workers inside our unions and in broader social movements. In this way, we can advance the political education of our fellow workers and build the kinds of organization we need to act independently. In November 2022, unions were on the verge of a general strike over Premier Ford's Bill 28, which would have outlawed strikes by public sector workers. The Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, 
education workers were on an illegal strike already, and Ontario Public Sector Employees Union education workers joined them in a wildcat strike. However, the call for a general strike was made and unmade behind closed doors by the labor bureaucracy. We saw a glimmer of the power workers have when they when we are united and assert our power in the workplace and the streets. To truly assert that power across the province, we are going to need to build a base of rank and file activists who are rooted in workplaces and social movements and are connected through shared experience of ongoing struggle. There's standing at the burn barrel again, right? Yes. <laughs> Building that unity and action around a clear set of demands and a shared understanding of the cost of living crisis and who is to blame can build that rank and file base so that the next general strike can't just be called off behind closed doors, end quote. And I will only add that QP has been attending workshops and using to great effect Jane McAlevey's teachings on the CIO method of organizing, which is a form of worker-led organizing. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's kind of a theme to the show today, Mark. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 The same message gets reinforced. Yeah. And well, I think I think that what we're talking about <clears throat> for me with this worker-led organizing is exciting because it leads to, as they were <clears throat> talking about with <clears throat> pardon me, with enough is enough, it leads to organizing of a broader base of people who are in what <clears throat> what was has once been called the struggling class, not to limit it exactly to the working class. Mm-hmm. But I like the <laughs> idea that it becomes a class organization rather than just an employer organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I think the United States, I mean, we got into bad trouble when employers started to pay our health care <clears throat> premiums. I mean, deal with our health care, right? <clears throat> Which was, I think, in the 50s or the 40s or whatever. World, World War II. <clears throat> World Why should they do that? There's no reason no for that. There's no reason for that. People should have. Well, but you know, Linda, maybe there was. It was called winning a war. Well, and, and I think think, it was, we'll sort I, out I the details later. My, <laughs> We've got to keep people healthy and at their machine station. Yeah, while we send them off to kill other people. But, uh, <laughs> I, know. I, I think it had the ironies abound. The time when there were um, wage controls, and the and the oh yes, lawyers wanted to be able to bring in more workers, but they couldn't offer them more money, so they went to the uh, the shift of offering them health benefits. Right. That's exactly and, um, right. Interesting. And so it and, was something that worked for them now, but now they don't want to pay anymore. And why should they be associated with that? So I'm excited about the fact that this can spread into a, you um, <clears throat> know, we can bring up the red scare now, but this can, this can spread into a class organizing thing so that all working people. You know, Linda, the red scare is already and, going on. Yeah, and that we're not subordinated to the capitalists. Right. If you listen to Fair and Balanced News, they'll say, well, don't even listen to any proposal that sounds like 
such and such. Don't get your head wrapped around what look like benefits because they're not because it's Marxist and it's evil. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be nice to be healthy and earn enough that you could have a place to live and feed yourself and maybe have kids and educate them. But you that's socialism. You can't do that. It breaks the rules. We have to stay within the rules. Uh, They're their rules, but I guess we have to observe their rules. Right, right. And I and one of the biggest things that Americans have been afraid of with have been made afraid of, I think, with union organizing is communism. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, it worked back right, in right. the 30s. It worked in the 40s. Right. The Red Scare. It works every single time. But capitalism does not work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, I, I would. No, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, I, I'm thinking that the, the the Red Scare is working the least amount this time around. No kidding. Um, really? I, that would be I, a great I, thing. I think it really is because, number one, um, really, you know, the, the uh, you know, China is kind of a state capitalist, but, you, you know. Yeah, and so and, is and, Russia. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I mean. A, it's a mirror of a developing world model. A few people own everything. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, actually, Russia is not like China that way. Um, I don't think Uh, Russia is is an oligarchy It's more like the United States where the rich Mm -hmm. rule Um, in China, on the other hand, is they, they, you know, they they're starting to get a few billionaires, but they don't really rule the roost. And um, and one thing I think you'd have to look at, I, I don't approve of their means, but um, the Chinese, the Chinese system has brought a billion people out of abject poverty in just a right, couple of decades. Right, right. That's th- that. That is something you can't take away from them. But but that being said, um, I think that the, the the red scare, the the fear of you know, you you hear this a lot from right wingers, right? Oh, this socialist, it's communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, by and large, a whole lot of people are are biting at that worm um that would be nice and because i think things are so crappy right now i mean Mm -hmm. things are disintegrating before our eyes that it just doesn't like it it doesn't carry much water with people i think right and i i can open a window on the china issue i know for a fact that within china the big effort is to root out corruption and nepotism and unfair opportunity for um you know uh people that are successful mm-hmm. and that they say that's got to go you cannot have a free and fair society which they don't of course <laughs> but it's nice if you can say that and get away with it and um don't have a bunch of gazillionaires like we have in the united states where yeah. you know four or five guys own 50% of the bookable assets of the entire country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That should be an issue. It should be an issue that people are working harder. They can't educate their kids. The kids that do get educated are going to be paying student loans when they could be paying a mortgage. So they're going to, so for working so hard to get that first rung on the ladder and be part of the American success story, they're going to end up living in penury. Yep. And that's that's an argument you can take to the bank and to the voting booth. Yeah. Yeah. 
There comes the temporarily embarrassed billionaire syndrome. I guess so. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I I think just one one quick note. One of the things I've been noticing around the country, there's been state legislatures have been passing laws trying to force people back to work or allowing children to work, right? Iowa's got a oh, terrible, terrible new law. And when you think about it, so wh- why is that? I mean, just really sim- simplistically, is that uh, capitalists cannot make a profit unless there's workers to do the work. They can't, you know, oh, there's yeah. there's not that many of these billionaire oligarchs around, right? Um, they're mm-hmm. few in number. And, you know, I like to see them, uh, you know, I like to see them serve up, be a barista at Starbucks, right? I, they, they, right. Wouldn't, yes. they wouldn't last a day. Um, and, uh, but, it, and so they're using force and the law mm-hmm. and economic, uh, you know, uh, e- economic blackmail mm-hmm. uh, to get people back to work. And so, uh, and I'm just going to weigh in here about uh, this real briefly, the, um, the the so-called debt ceiling crisis. Oh yeah, w- which is was a complete fabricated thing. It it mm-hmm. means it means nothing except what it did do is it allow uh, bipartisan. This includes Biden. It allowed a bipartisan um, effort, for instance, to uh, to cut benefits for uh, workers, including yes. forcing people from age 50 to 59, I believe, that if they want to get food stamps, they got to find a job. Now, that's economic coercion, forcing people to work to make the capitalists their profit. And when we're talking here about strikes, we're really saying we're withholding our labor from the capitalists so they can't make a profit. Mm -hmm. It creates a crisis for them. And, right. you know, they can they can send military, they can break strikes, they can use injunctions, they can try to get, you know, make things illegal like they right. tried in Ontario. Um, and uh, but it, that just shows you how dependent on workers. Oh, yeah. Capitalist class is. Yeah, I remember Frank Lloyd Wright, who's not associated with, huh, you know, social causes saying, you know, it is an absolute necessity that labor's has the right to strike because they have to compel the owners of capital to recognize their contribution and their needs. Mm, yep. If yep. we're if we're to have a democracy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And right now we have an oligarchy and the 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 rich do what they will. So I think it's so ironic that the guy who came out and said we have an oligarchy. Let's stop kidding ourselves. Was a career naval officer. He was preened and groomed to be a jerk and a guy who enjoyed <laughs> ultimate authority in his realm. And yet he's a wonderful, wonderful person. So there you go. There you go. Who to thunk it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings singing This Land is Your Land. As is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Besides the Missoula Starbucks United Workers, there are efforts to do more union organizing in western Montana among the service industry and under industries as well. That's right, Jim. <clears throat> there are six more worksite organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month at various stages of development with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. <clears throat> if, you, if you so feel moved, show your solidarity with Missoula Starbucks workers organizing into a union. Come by their store on Brook Street and buy something inside the store on Wednesday, June 21st, and tell the workers that you are there to support them. Um, that's and... an easy thing to do if you so feel moved. Um, the Western Montana Workers Alliance also sponsors a monthly labor education workshop. The next labor workshop is actually a movie night where we will eat popcorn and watch Made in L.A., a film about three Latina immigrant women 
uh, worker-led organizing a union at a trendy clothing factory in Los Angeles. That that will be held at 6 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, July 6th, two days after the 4th of July, at the Good Works Place, 129 West Alder Street in downtown Missoula. And the best thing about it, it's free of charge, including the popcorn. So come on by. Uh, Anyone who works in Western Montana and who is interested in organizing or knows someone who does, you can find support and practical help uh, by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N. MTWA at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406 924 3830. That's 406 924 3830. And you probably will see us if you're at Pride uh, events in Missoula, you'll see us uh, there as well. So look us up. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, thanks, Linda and Jim, for, as always, an excellent show. Um, and appreciate, definitely appreciate both of you being here. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. Democracy is coming to the Democracy is coming to die.